The totally unforeseen accident on the lunar surface has caused very serious repercussions here on Earth. The gravity disruption, the earthquakes in the United States along the San Andreas Fault and in Yugoslavia, as well as southern France, has caused enormous damage to life and There are those who believe that life here began out there. We can rebuild him. Hercules, Atlas. These are their stories. Autopilot with Scott Johnson and Tom Merritt. everybody and welcome back to another episode of autopilot this is where we talk about pilots of shows that we love and sometimes not doesn't matter it's historically interesting so just sit down and relax my name is scott and i didn't do a nickname so let's go <laughs> i'm scott i'm, I'm scott nickname. uh do uh, uh 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 my belt is too high johnson and that's tom uh his Why? belt is also too high <laughs> there you go Merit. My belts are so tight. I don't know why I forgot that. I usually remember these stupid nicknames. I didn't even notice it. I'm sorry. I didn't either. I usually I'm I'm sort of in charge of that. I should have caught that. But anyway, hey everybody, it's uh, today's pilot is uh, Space 1999 and the episode Breakaway, written by George Belak and directed by Lee H. Katzin. It's a strange name, Katzin. Probably a shorter way of saying it. Katzin. Anyway, let's get on to the introduction, shall we? We shall. Let's do it. Tom says. So far, their brain activity is normal. So far. So far. Yeah, so far. Yes. Tell us about it, Tom. What is this damn thing? I to stay that way, Scott. <laughs> As we all know, uh, Scott, back in 1999, we, of course, had a moon base. Mm-hmm. And we all remember in September 1999 when John Koenig reported, or Koenig, I guess, reported to Earth's Space Research Center at Moon Base Alpha as its new commander. A strange sickness was at that time... This is because this is a historical documentary. Killing some of the moon base Alpha crew. <laughs> Commander Koenig's investigation revealed that the source lay at a nuclear waste disposal area one caused by excessive magnetic energy fields. Whoa. Uh, about which the insane clown posse was none too happy to hear. <laughs> the continuous buildup of energy shortly caused massive explosion clusters that knocked the moon off orbit into deep space, and we here on Earth have been without the moon ever since. All right, John K- K- uh, Koenig, Koenig, possible uh, reference to Chekhov, maybe? Well, yeah, Walter Koenig, John mm. Koenig, spelled mm. the same, maybe. Mm. There's a little Star Trekiness to this thing. Might, don't, don't might no be. Doubt. All right, well, let's look behind the scenes and find out. What they have is an unusual form of brain damage. Their condition is critical. So they're not going to recover. No, they're not. That's I, why I'm talking like this, to be dramatic. You're going to recover there, Bella Lugosi. The series, which was called Space 1999... Was the uh, production by the partnership of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson was Last the most one, expensive yeah. series produced for British television up to that time. An important note here that I ha- I had always assumed Space 1999 was a U.S. production. I had no idea. Oh, and here here was my first indication. Starting to watch it, and everybody's talking British. I'm like, what's going on, Martin Landau? Come on in here and let's American this thing up a little bit. But yeah, it was it was produced over there. Uh, Andersons did Thunderbirds and Supercar, among others, for those uh, looking for a good reference point. 
I love Thunderbirds. We should do that. Thunderbirds are go. We should do that in season four. All right. If I don't, let me check. I think I already have that down. If we don't, I'm I'm adding it right now to the possibles. That's just a perfect thing. Uh, In 1972, Sir Lou Grade, he has a Lou Grade fever, wanted (laughs) uh, the Andersons to do another season of UFO, but it had to, or it had to be set not the moon is what happened. No, that's that's, that's my bad typing. It had to be set on the moon. (laughs) Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. Sorry. This was tentatively called UFO 1999. The new series was deemed too expensive, but Jerry Anderson uh, got grades number uh, into, uh, or number two to in New York. Abe Mandel, this is number two. That's who you would refer to him as number two. Um, to revive the series as a new franchise, and they renamed it uh, Space 1999. There's a, a, a tortured history to this show. I yeah, had no more idea. than you did. I don't know, yeah. more than I expected. The fact that it's, um, A, the most expensive thing ever at the time makes sense to me after watching it. We'll get to that more later. But also the fact that it only lasted, what, two seasons? Uh one season. Was it one? Oh, wait. No, it had, did have a second season. That's right. that a second series. Also a very British thing to do. Not right. dragging a show out to eight or nine seasons. So it all kind of makes sense to me now. Uh, let's see. Originally, Anderson wanted to blow up the earth when Mandel said it might be off-putting. That might not. Yeah, that's very off-putting, he said. About, yeah. No, he was a New Yorker. Oh, okay. That was going to be off-putting. <laughs> it's off-putting. I don't know why he was Italian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Abe Mandel, that's not right. Anderson said he would blow up the moon. And he said, well, that's far less off-putting. Uh, Anderson's 30-minute plot, Zero-G, had a commander, Maddox, heading uh, Earth Defense Forces Wander. I guess Wander is a... I would like to know what that acronym Probably stands for. Probably some acronym, yeah, yeah. Uh, and being captured by ex- extraterrestrials. The aliens deemed Earth too dangerous, and uh, but reduced moon's, uh, moon's gravity to Zero-G and sent it hurling into space with Maddox, whom they deemed noble. So we still get the moon going off on its own at the end, but by for entirely different reasons. Sounds like a Battlestar story. It's kind of a Gaius Baltar yeah. story point there. Oh, yeah, collaborating with the aliens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, George Bellack came uh, in at the request of the production company to give it an American take and wrote the uh, wrote a writer's guide in a 90-minute pilot episode called The Void Ahead, uh, which was similar to Breakaway, which is what, we're, what we watched for this one. Before production started, Bellack and Anderson had a falling out. Christopher Penfold... That guy's got to be British. You don't have a name like Penfold if you're not from over the... Over the Mrs. Pond. Penfold. Hello, hello. Poppington on fresh. Uh, <laughs> was brought in as head writer. He reworked The Void Ahead into a 60-minute draft <laughs> called Turning Point and then finally uh, finished it up and called it Breakaway in the End. Now, for a, a work that went through that much revision and that much controversy, because apparently Jerry Anderson was none too easy to work with, mm. the script ends up holding up pretty well i agree yeah totally agree it's not a bad right and it's not it's it's weird because i feel like it was kind of hard sci-fi we don't get a lot of that with these older science fiction things they're usually really simple boilerplate kind of plot points and ideas these ideas are a little more high-minded i thought Um, maybe that was the secret of the success is that it went through so many eyes and they refined it instead of making it worse totally could be uh, the show's vehicles, including the Eagle shuttles uh, and the moon buggy, were represented with a mixture of full-sized props, uh, some photographic blow-ups, and detailed scale models. Uh, dozens of the models for the various alien spaceships and the Mark IX Hawk from the War Games episode that airs later on were built by model maker Martin Bauer, and often at several different sizes, uh, depending on how they intended to use them. So this great. This was a lot of work. Mm. During filming of the first episode they, at, at the Elstree Studios for the special effects, 
they found out that Elstree Studios was going bankrupt and probably going to close. So one weekend, the production company secretly relocated sets, props, costumes, and everything else to Pinewood Studios and then got blacklisted by the union for doing it. <laughs> wow. How uh, did it end up not closing? We don't know that, do we? Elstree Studios did go. Oh, did they go, did? Yeah, did go bust. All right. Well, good move. Uh, and so that would have that would have delayed things. And another thing that delayed things was Katzen's director's cut ran two hours. Yeah. It was 15 shooting days over schedule. And when, when Mandel and, and the rest of the ITC folks took a look at it, they apparently found it horrifying. So Anderson rewrote several key scenes and did three days of reshoots, re-edited the, edited the pilot into a one-hour episode that appeased the fears of ITC, and Katzen was not asked back to the program after the filming of his second episode, Black Sun, which also ran over schedule. Wow, that guy couldn't be stopped. Yeah, and so not, not only do we have three scripts, but we now have a shoot and a re-edit, and yet this thing ends up being pretty tight. Yeah, I still don't get how that worked out. Like, so far, you've described production nightmare after one yeah. after another way over budget way over time way over everything everyone's fighting people are getting fired left and right somehow the product ended up fine but we're not done though no, there's you more there's more. if you watch this thing to the end that there's a production company named rai that gets prominent credit at the end that was the italian partner because this was a combination of distribution deals right so it was uk company distribution in the United States that they were trying to go after, and this Italian company, they insisted Italian actors to be used. So they had to shoehorn in <laughs> some Italians into the plot. Who were they? Uh, I don't. I, oh, was it the girl? I think it's later on in the series, but it's a couple of guys. Oh, okay, I okay. I'd be a couple of guys in this one. Yeah, because the pilot didn't seem to have anyone Italian in it. Now, your friend Christopher Penrod would eventually drop out as the head writer, yeah. even though he had taken over right. uh, because of troubles involved with telexing scripts. That was how long ago this was. They would telex the script to New York for approval and then get constant rewrites. So it'd take forever to send it, get back, and then you'd have to rewrite and send it again. He's like, I'm done. I'm out of here. Imagine that in today's world, man. Just so different now. No, Little I know. Seconds later, you get an entire script. It's crazy how different that must be now for production. And our final final little behind-the-scenes note, uh, this this almost pales in comparison to the rest of them, but Nick Tate, who ended up playing Alan Carter in this episode, was originally cast as Collins, uh, one, of the, one of the guys who goes nuts, yep. who was played by Eric Cart. And another actor was originally cast as Nordstrom, another of the guys that gets sick. Uh, but he actually got really sick in real life after the special milky contact lenses had been made. Ugh. Uh, and they had to use a replacement actor, which ended up being Roy Scamell. So wait, but it wasn't the fault of the Milky. No, contacts. I don't think. I don't think. But it, they they had already made the lenses; they were ready for him to go. And then he got really <laughs> sick, and they're like, "Oh crap! Now we have to find somebody with the same size eyes." I don't know. And the guy who was playing Nordstrom's got the pink eye. Quick <laughs> to the to the <laughs> fake contact I'm not maker. Those contact lenses in my eyes. <laughs> That's crazy, man. That yeah, rife with problems this production. But there's even weirder stuff. To come, so check this out. Captain, I'm here to get the Metaprobe launched. All I want to know is crew accepted, you're ready to go. Yeah, we're ready to go. The Metaprobe, that's a probe who knows that there's a probe about a probe going in the probe. <laughs> yeah, it's the probe that probes the other probes. Right, that's the Metaprobe. Meta uh, some weird stuff going on in this production. The dates on which the events in this episode take place are not very subtle. They start, uh, literally it's 9 nine ninety nine. And end on the thirteenth. Those uh, are always those are always big dates for like video game releases. You know, 
Yeah. Like well, the, remember there was that nine nine ninety nine computer problem. Yep. That right. pre presaged the Y two K button. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, eleven 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 was when uh, Skyrim was released. So yeah, this is that's a not an uncommon thing to try to zero in on those dates. Uh, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain were married at the time. You mean the one who talks like this? Yes. She's she like, was married to Martin Landau. I think she's a bit of a robot herself. Yeah, she might be. Uh, we're married at the time and had previously appeared together in Mission Impossible. And I do oh, remember another that. Another autopilot connection. Yeah, we did. Uh, that's right. That's uh, In fact, was Landau even in that pilot? I don't think he was. No, because he was added later. Right. That's right. He's great in that, though. Uh, Roy Detrice. Hey, we know this guy. Ah, the Game of Thrones narrator from yeah. the audiobooks. He's, yeah, yeah. He's great. Uh, in this, in the first episode is Commissioner Simmons. And at the end of the episode, it appeared that he would uh, be a regular character. However, by the second transmitted episode, the character vanished. Just poof, gone. Don't know what happened to him. That's gonna- Well, yeah, and he is such an important character in this pilot, right? Yeah, he's pivotal. He's a, he's a commissioner who comes to and gets stuck on the moon, right? That seems to be perfect, like tension to him trying to be in in charge even though he doesn't have any experience and he's stranded but no there's like yeah he just goes and takes naps but roy detrice if you haven't heard him do the readings of the game of thrones books the uh uh, ice and fire books you'll 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 fall in love with the way this guy reads he's he's amazing although i don't like it when he does women he just sounds just sounds terrible when he's trying to do a woman's voice in those readings but (laughs) which thankfully he doesn't do in space no he does not um he also sounds way less old in the show than he does now which is probably because he is old all right after a falling out with the networks mandel not howie no but abe other one abe uh created his own space 1999 first run syndication network in the u.s uh most independent stations like wgn uh chicago that's right wgn chicago they used to play um zoom remember zoom that was always a wgn thing uh ran the show uh, but some affiliates like nbc's wson south carolina would sometimes preempt network shows to run it which is you know poking people with a hot stick right there many we kind of got used to this with star trek the next generation right like oh big shows can be successful on syndication but back when this was launched in 75 that was not done nope you didn't do it that way and now they don't do either so yeah. <laughs> times are changing. Many uh, stations in the U.S. aired episode 23, Dragon's Domain, immediately following the pilot. In the U.K., episode 9, Force of Life, followed the pilot. This has led to a controversy over what order the show should literally be watched in. And this came up, remember, this came up as an important point of our Firefly coverage uh, last season. Right. It's what sunk Firefly is that yeah. they aired everything out of order. And I wonder if this case, if this hurt them here, too. Who knows? I, it probably did. Mm-hmm. And, the, I mean, really, you go from episode one to episode 23? That's weird. That's going to work? I know it's more of a procedural. That's I guess a, Firefly. That's literally of... folding space and time, going from episode one Seriously. to episode 23. <laughs> uh, they in, in sort of an advance of Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, they do a sequence at the beginning that says, in this episode. Yep. And they show you a bunch of scenes from the episode. However, in the pilot, several shots are in this episode that aren't actually in the episode. Uh, mainly effect shots, including a magnetic uh, crab exploding against a laser barrier, an alternative robot eagle crash, and a rock slide, which might actually be from the episode Matter of Life and Death. Uh, the caption is in lowercase, too, for this episode, only in the pilot against a black background. In all other episodes, it's capitalized on a blue background. Yeah, it's a weird way of doing it. The way they did the credits in general, all that stuff was weird. Thought it was just a little odd, a little, a little European in 1975 or whatever it was. 
Kind of caught me off guard. I think I said magnetic crab. Uh, it was not a magnetic crab. It was a magnetic grab. One of the grappling. Oh, grappling grabs. Yeah. Not there a were crab. No, there were no magnetic crabs. I was just going to believe you that there was a crab and I missed saw it or something. That would have been great. Uh, in 1999, they had a breakaway 1999 convention to celebrate the actual 1999 arriving. It was in Los Angeles, California. And a short featurette entitled Message from Moonbase Alpha premiered. This was on September 13th. It was produced by fans, written by script editor Johnny Byrne from the Space 1999 team, mm. and featured a tearful monologue performed by actress Xenia Merton in character as Sandra Benes. Oh, she cried even. Yeah, that's sad. No, that's good. That's good. Way to celebrate, guys. You partied like it was 1999. They sure did. Yes, they did indeed. Another weird fact here, Isaac Asimov criticized the scientific accuracy of the series, pointing out, this reminds me of Neil deGrasse Tyson's (laughs) gravity critique, uh, pointing out that any explosion capable of knocking the moon out of its orbit would actually blow it apart. And even if it did leave orbit, it would take thousands of years to reach the nearest star. So... He's like, uh, you're jumping ahead to reach another stars and planets not going to happen. He did, however, praise the program for its superbly accurate representation of movement in low gravity, mm. which DeGrasse Tyson also says the movement is mostly good, except for this one little piece where he could have tugged her. But, yeah. And yeah. Asimov's not known for his exciting swashbuckling tales anyway. His things are a little bit more cerebral and boring. So a swashbuckling tale of a man who <laughs> died but predicted the future hundreds of years in advance. Don't forget the three laws of cowboys. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and finally, in February 2012, ITV Studios America and HD Films officially announced their intention to produce a reimagining Whoa. of Space 1999 to be titled Space... Twenty ninety nine. <laughs> That's a good way to do this. Jump away out there so that we're not, you know. Yeah. We don't. We don't, we don't need to. Twenty run years into later, that we're date. not making the jokes that we're making in this. I episode. love in seventy five how we were sure certain things would be a certain way in nineteen ninety nine. It's just too close. You got to go out further. Yeah, it's more like two thousand one: A Space Odyssey than anything that actually existed in actual nineteen ninety nine. Right. That's a good point. Um, it's funny though. February twenty twelve. You'd think we'd heard more, and I did some checking. There is no updates on this. Like, I know. very quiet, which is really too bad because. I would like to see it. Yeah, I would really like to see it. I think they could, they could, uh, you know, they could take this thing a little bit further and do some nice modernization, and we'd actually have a pretty good show to look forward to on a weekly to basis. To answer the Asimov critique, Jerry Anderson's original script had a piece of the moon coming oh, off nice. rather than the entire moon breaking up, so you could actually have some real science. Well, if they weren't flap, flipping around with all their crappy production problems, they might have got it right, and Isaac Asimov could have gotten an extra hour of sleep. All right. We'll see what actually happened. Whatever affected the two probe astronauts and killed the other nine men was not radiation. Seems not. Damn it. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about what we, uh, what we actually thought and what kind of went down in this thing. I mean, plot-wise, it's a like I said earlier, it's a bit cerebral. They're not really, there's not a lot of action in this. There's some, but it's mostly a lot of focus on detective work, really trying to figure out what that virus is. How are they, why are these guys going crazy and dying? I remember during the pilot being very impressed with the, with the weightless shots uh, of those guys jumping around down there at the station or at the whatever they were doing down there testing. And they had the buggy and all that. Yeah. I think it was a combination of wire work and slow motion. But one way or the other, especially for something that aired in 95 or 75, kind of blown away by how real that looked. That looked like low gravity moon. 
jumping to me. Yeah, I mean, again, 2001 A Space Odyssey, right? In fact, yep. I, I kind of feel like the aesthetic here is Star Trek, the original series, meets 2001 A Space Odyssey because they have those tan mm-hmm. outfits that that T- the original series, or not, not so, you really mean, you the mean original the, series, but more Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah, the motion picture. They had those gray, sleek uniforms, very similar to that. I thought yeah, that yeah. throughout the whole thing. I thought, oh, yeah, that's very, and that didn't come till later. Right. So I guess technically it's the other way around, but still it's that kind of... It bridges the gap yeah, yeah, between I the agree. two movies. Right? I agree. Uh, I didn't... Yeah. I did, so speaking of that, it looked great. Like, I, I expected these crappy sets like we've seen from Logan's Run or from uh, Jason of Star Command or something, and I was wrong. These are like... It looked expensive even by, the, again, 75 standards. They're using like... Room, space and rooms where they've gone to great detail of what do the what do the bulkheads look like? What do these vents look like? How do the computer walls and these like console things look like? His office looked really well thought out. Like I walked away going, that wasn't cheap. That show it couldn't have been, but it was also sparse, right? Yeah, like these are these are very plain white interiors, which look great. I'm not disagreeing with you at all, but it's a lot cheaper to do it that way than to do what Firefly did, right? That's true. Where you have it look dirty. And what's really funny about this is watching it this time, I thought exactly the same thing you did. I'm like, wow, this holds up really well. It looks really good. When I watched this on VHS in in the 90s, <laughs> I remember because I was working at Half Price Books in the mid-90s, and I got Space 1999 at, at work, brought it home to watch because we could check out things from the bookstore, and we sold used videotapes. I remember thinking how dated it looked yeah. because then I was comparing it to different shows. Sure. I was comparing it to shows where the aesthetic was to be brighter, to have, to have, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation, right? Deep Space Nine. This didn't look as good as those did, but it was closer to them. Now we're on into Battlestar Galactica and gritty and dirty and Space 1999 looks good. It's like, oh, if you're going to do a clean take, that, that's a really good looking take. It's yep. funny how my perception changed. Yeah, mine too. I, I'm, I'm finding this to be true. A lot of these pilots we watch, I think there's something about getting past the, the 90s and the first aughts. And and now looking back, there's something different about that than me and you doing this in 1994. There's something very different about it. Definitely, definitely. Can't I mean, really put my finger on it, but it's, we couldn't watch Firefly. Well, that's one <laughs> point. Yeah, that's a <laughs> really besides good point. that, no, no, your your perceptions of things are formed by the styles and designs that you're used to at the time. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And we had very little. We had less of that under our belt than we do now. We've seen a broader spectrum of what people come up with. I mean, I I do think it's still. You know, shows all do this. The Firefly will will also feel this way at some point, but you know, keep, keeping the sideburns and the and the bell bottoms of the seventies yeah. all the way up till their version of nineteen ninety nine. You know, to me, that's just I don't know if it's lack of forethought. Like I think you can do this if you watch Alien, which I saw recently again, the, the original Alien. They didn't have so much of a problem with that, where hairstyles, sideburns clothing whatever looked like it was stuck in the 70s and this was some future time uh, where it didn't fit in they actually did a pretty good job of that some movies do this better and some tv shows do this better than others do it this i think this show had a weird combination of like exteriors and interiors look pretty good uh and still hold up to you know to some in some visual way but the way everybody was dressing and the way they held their hair and the way that they were putting belts on and, and their zippers and all this stuff just looked screamed of we can't see past of the year we're in well and i I wonder if it's easier if you go full military because the military style stays hairstyles anyway stays consistent right you know it's short hair it's practical hair and so that looks less dated than if you let people have a style 
And then it's like, well, that style looks almost kind of 60s, and that style looks kind of 70s, and appropriate for today. Yeah, I think you're probably right. That's always a hard thing to, for them to deal with. And if you make a new show today, like, I don't know. Uh, what's something I like right now? Uh, let's say Justified, just as an example. Okay. At some, at some point, you'll be able to look back on Justified and go, Oh, well, that was the look of the day, and it's set in that day, and I'm cool with that. It's like right. watching an old Burt Reynolds movie or something. Why watching Magnum P.I., right? Right, or Magnum P.I., very stuck in the early 80s, late 70s. This thing, you, you hope with your science fiction that you're able to somehow bridge those gaps and have the foresight to see far enough ahead. You know, for Star Trek, it was, well, we've got sideburns, but they come to a point, and that's weird and alien-like, so maybe that'll hold up one day. And it kind of does. Like, nobody ever really had those hairstyles in the 60s. Those were just the way they decided to go. So Kirk with a pointy, you know, sideburn holds up today, and they do it in the new movies even. Right. So it's nice to see when people pull that off. The show did a pretty good job, I think, on the whole of doing that. But there are moments where you're like, really? Like, Well, I, the thing that did not stick out to me when I watched it in the 90s and totally stuck out to me now was that little handheld video thing. All right. Right? Now that we live in an age of smartphones, I'm like, why would you have a big bulky thing just to answer the door? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, with a tiny screen. Yeah, and it was clear that that was an important piece of hardware because everybody oh, yeah. was using it. There was a major point of like, you know, handing it to the guy and making him take it as if it was this symbolic thing and whatever but yeah you look back now and you just go what i mean it's already bad enough with tng and ds9 when they're using tricorders that are the size of you know yeah. <laughs> a brick or whatever but yeah it, it's hard and i understand it i get that it's hard but i really respect science fiction that gets creative enough to come up with stuff and ideas that don't have to tie everybody to reality now and i know it's important to have a mix of that because you can't have something so weird and out there that audiences can't relate but you want to be able to throw enough in there. Like, I think 2001 Space Odyssey does this. Actually, most Kubrick movies do this. But yeah. they, they don't feel weird out of time. So I could watch that movie now and go, yeah, this is about right. Like this yeah, if anything, it's the production quality might look a little dated. But sure. the actual content, not as much. Except for, you know, the Pan Am logo. Yeah. But okay. maybe it's coming back. I, I got to talk to you sometime about that Room 237 movie. About all the people with their conspiracy theories about... um. Uh, the Kubrick movie, uh, the Stephen King movie, The Shining. That is the weirdest documentary I've ever seen, and it's oh, I gotta watch. That. Oh, you need to, dude. It's the it's all conspiracy theories about what all what all the symbology means and all these hidden messages, and it's totally up your alley. But moreover, I just want to talk to you about like what these people said. I mean, it's obviously not for the show, but it's a no, very, no. I got I got definitely got to watch. Really that. interesting. Before we wrap this up, though, yeah. I, can we mention the lightning? Of course. Why is there lightning in the vacuum of well, space? Well, listen. Okay, there's a little atmosphere on the moon, but not enough to carry lightning. You have clearly not been in what I like to call a moon downpour, where, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that was dumb. A and lunar it, downpour. That was pretty dumb. It's Some of these things just assume, you know, our brains are on hold and we're not paying attention. Yeah. But I noticed that, too, and I just went, oh, great. And it's that, <laughs> that famous animated blue lightning I hate so much in everything it's used in. Right. See, if CGI did anything for me, you could argue that we've over CGI the film world. That's fine. You can you can make that argument. And I may even agree with you. But one major advantage of CGI has been way better lightning. Yep. <laughs> Since those days. You kids don't know how bad the lightning was back in our day. Yeah. Got to watch out for that. And then I would say one last thing, and that is these shows, when we've seen a few of these in a row and we've done some film sack movies, too, that are made in this era. Man, everybody sure like to rely on that Atari font. Like that number font? 
Oh, well, you know, that's a machine-readable font. Is it? That's why it was created. I because hate it. It, in, in the early OCR days, you had to create the letters so that they were easy to be read by the machines and they could distinguish certain parts of the line. There is absolutely no reason to have that typeface on the exterior of anything that, yeah. you're, that you're not going to be reading. They just did that because they're like, that looks pretty spacey. Let's use that font. Yeah, I hate that font. Which is why Atari used it too. Yeah, they did. you're right. I mean, it's it's terrible. It's a time. Of, it's a thing of its time, and we hope it stays there. Let's get to the rap party. Forget the pro, Carter. Before we do anything more, I'm going to find out why those two men died. All right, tiny little nugget of information, a fun little treat, whatever you want to call this, is what we do each episode, and we've got one for this episode as well. Uh, and this one is, and I did. Why didn't I write it in there? That's funny. I know what it is, obviously. Uh, this is what is it? What is it? Martin, I can't wait. Martin Landau is famous for a few things. He did a bunch of TV, a bunch of movies, a fixture if you watched a lot of TV and movies in the 70s and 60s. So the guy's been around. Entourage. Yeah, Entourage, right. He's done some stuff recently. Highly respected, but one of the reasons he's most respected is his role as Bela Lugosi Uh, in 1994's Tim Burton's Ed Wood, which is one of my favorite movies ever. And I love that movie, and I love his performance in it, and he won an Oscar for that. And he deserved it. He was amazing. Best supporting, or maybe I don't. I think it was best. Supporting. I always associate that movie with Mystery Science Theater. Oh, really? Because I was watching Mystery Science Theater at at the time that that movie came out, and Plan Nine from Outer Space, mm. perfect Mystery Science Theater movie, right? So it just kind of kind of works, and together. a focus of that film as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's great stuff. It's the best. It's one of the best. There are two movies I think Tim Burton doesn't get enough credit for that I think are the, his best movies, and it's that and Big Fish. Those are both amazing movies. If you haven't seen Big Fish, you should totally watch Big Fish. I like Big Fish, you're right. Uh, so I'm going to play a couple of lines from it, and uh, these are moments with Martin Landau in the role of Bella Lugosi in that movie. So here's a couple of them. My favorite, I'll save for last. Here's the first one. Beware. Beware. Beware of the big green dragon that sits on your doorstep. Awesome. Great. Now, time to laugh a little bit. Oh, and if your kids are listening, this has a little, it has the S word. So there's your warning. Here you go. Carlos does not deserve to smell my shit. It's a great line. (laughs) Uh, Scott, those are some huge tracks of Landau. (laughs) They are big tracks of Landau. Stake your claim now. Uh, there you go, folks. That's, uh, uh, space 1999. Please, please watch it. I recommend it. I got this on iTunes. It's not streaming anywhere else that we are aware of. You know, I thought it was streaming on Amazon instant video and IMDB says it's streaming on Amazon instant video, mm. but I don't think it is streaming on Amazon. Instant it wasn't video. when I, I looked. They're I, all lying yeah, to us. I looked too. And it was maybe it just recently got dropped or maybe, something. Yeah. But it probably the database has enough. Sure. Love to see more of these weird British productions science fiction stuff from uh, yesteryear come and show up on, on mainstream services. That would be really nice. Cause I would, I would gladly watch supercar. I may watch birds are go. And, and when I put up online that, Hey, you know, one of the things we're doing this season is this show sure got a lot of response from people saying it was my first and most important science fiction experience. Like a lot of wow. talk like that. Um, huh. So I remember, I remember it being on, but I was much more into Star Trek: The Original Series, which was on Saturday mornings and reruns, than I was into Space Ninety Nine. Totally Maybe it was too. on too late for me to watch, or on a weird channel. Or something I think it was like. that was me too. And I think if you either had to be a little bit older to catch Nineteen Ninety Nine, or you were British, or 
you had to just grow into it or something. I think you and I are a product of that time. And that time was all about Star Trek reruns for sure. Yeah. That's all I was into at the time. And there was even a narration in this that sounded a lot like George Takei. Did you? I really thought so too. I looked it up and I could not find any, any explanation of who it was, but it's weird. Probably not him, but it certainly sounded like. All right. Well, people do check it out next week. The incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby. The Incredible Hulk, one we've had on our list for I can't tell you how long, forever. Uh, we've been not anymore. Nope, not anymore. So knocking it down. We're not going to do this one until we walk down the lonely highway with our backpack with our thumb out. That's how. Don't make me angry. <laughs> would, I, I wouldn't like you when you're you when you're angry. I've never seen Tom angry. What am I saying? I've I've heard you mad. I turn green, but I've never seen you. I don't angry. get very big though. I just turn green. Oh, okay, that's a, not a good power. And then you're like, I don't like that. Doesn't look good on you. That's a bad power to have. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, folks, support us by going to autopilotshow.com. All of the episodes we've ever done for seasons one through three are to be found there. Give them a listen if you haven't already. Autopilotshow at gmail.com is where you can send your email feedback on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Johnson, Tom at Ace Detect, and the show at Autopilot Show. That's gonna do it for us. For me. For Tom, and for all mankind who hope to one day push the moon out of orbit, we'll see you next time. I've got to get out of here. Let me out of here.